This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash be here now. everyone, this is Chris Grasso with the Indie Spirituals Podcast on the Be Here Now Network. And my guest today is the wonderful writer, uh, Phil Goldberg. Phil, thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure, Chris. Um, so before we get started, as I always do, I'd like to read your bio for my audience just to give them a little background. And then we're going to dig even deeper into your background and then talk about uh, some of the very, very incredible work that you have done and continue to do. So that being said, Philip Goldberg is an acclaimed author and public speaker whose numerous books include the award-winning American Veda, From Emerson and the Beatles to Yoga and Meditation, How Indian Spirituality Changed the West, uh, Road Signs on the Spiritual Path, Living at the Heart of the Paradox, and his new book, a comprehensive biography of Paramahansa Yogananda, titled The Life of Yogananda, the story of the yogi who became the first modern guru. A meditation teacher and ordained interfaith minister, he is also the co-host of the popular Spirit Matters podcast and leads American Veda tours to India. His website is Goldberg. Uh, dot com. I'll just spell that out. P H I L I P G O L D B E R G dot com. And for those that are listening to this uh, at the Be Here Now Network website, just scroll down and you'll see a link attached so you can click on that. So, Phil, thank you again so much for joining me today. It's a real pleasure to connect. Um, you know, it was a pleasure chatting with you on your podcast uh, not too long yeah, ago. So we're it's a, switching it's, roles. Yeah, it's a joy to have you on mine. So <laughs> thanks for coming aboard. It's fun. Thanks. Yeah. So, you know, I first learned about you through our mutual friend, um, the wonderful, just beautiful human being, Dana Sawyer, um, who was, uh, I believe, professor of religions at uh, Mecca College in Portland, Maine. Um, uh, and anyway, so I was staying with him. I think he and I connected. He had saw an interview I, uh, I had done. I was on Buddha at the gas pump and he just reached out cause, uh, he wanted me to come speak to his students and we hit it off. And my first time visiting him, your name came up and he gave me, he had an extra copy of American Veda and, uh, and he gave me that and I absolutely loved it. So 
it's great how this things just you know tend to come full circle. Yeah, um, well, we have a lot of mutual friends. Yes, uh, Dana, Dana being one of them, and he and I are uh, looking forward to uh, coming east and teaching at Kripalu with him in June. Yes, right. I, we, we talked about that on uh, on your show, yeah. and and I'm I, I think that's wonderful. But right when you know I'm looking through the endorsements of your newest book, um, The Life of Yogananda, and. And absolutely, you know, seeing Ken Wilber and, and Krishna Das, Michael Bernard Beckwith, the wonderful Andrew Harvey, Rabbi uh, Rami Shapiro, whom I adore, Mirabai Star and Sally Kempton. I mean, yes, we have many, <laughs> many lovely. Oh, Danny Goldberg, who also hosts a show here on the Be Here Now Network. I mean, just yeah. a laundry list of truly beautiful people that uh, that were interconnected through. So it's been great getting to know you a bit better and. And uh, so speaking of which, before we get to this new book, which I'm excited to talk to you about, The Life of Yogananda, um, I wanted to talk to you about Phil, you know, so if, if, if you don't mind, Phil, maybe sharing nope. a little bit about going back as far as, you know, I leave it to you, but as far back as you'd like, maybe what what ended up leading you to the spiritual path? I know you and I share very similar uh, viewpoints and appreciations for interspirituality and drawing, um, you know, inspiration from all of the great wisdom traditions and their mystic elements. So um, I'd love to hear a little bit about that and, and what led you to the path first and foremost. Well, um, essentially, I was a child of the 60s. Sure. Um, so like uh, some of the people you mentioned in going through the endorsers to my book, and like one of them, Danny uh, Goldberg chronicled in his book about 1967, um, and like Ramdas, only you know half a generation younger, uh, I grew up in an era where you know question authority was the bumper sticker. And and in fact, I was raised that way. I was I, I grew up in Brooklyn. Uh, my parents were secular Jews, mm-hmm. um, and to say they were non-religious is is really an understatement. They were anti-religious, sure. and so I I had no um, religious upbringing at all, except to think that people who were religious were. Uh, fools. Yeah, you <laughs> that, and I should. That's that, how. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and and you know they were lefties, so religion was the opium of the people, and yeah. and that's how I was right into college. And I was uh, a social activist. I would you know march for civil rights and against the war, and I did everything I could to avoid the draft back then in the Vietnam days. And but that the spirit of that era was not just of protest and uh, anti-authority sort of activism, but um, also of deep questioning, uh, for many of us anyway. You know, there was, at the same time we were socially involved, um, we were questioning what's real and what's not real, what's true and what's not true, what what's a path of authentic living and, and what is artificial. And what are we here for? Who are we? What is this all about? And we were exploring and we were looking for answers. And part of that uh, was psychedelics and drug use. And 
you know, say what you will about the indiscriminate use of them, as many of us did back then. There were dangers and hazards. But for for many of us, it was a door opener. It was like we had a glimpse of something beyond ordinary reality and a glimpse of uh, transcendence. And so part of the search was exposure to the ideas and practices that came to us from the East. So what, what ordinary people would call Hinduism and Buddhism were um, coming our way, in, mostly in books in those days, right. uh, pre-internet and pre-social media and everything. Um, so books were being passed around and borrowed and stolen. <laughs> <laughs> and, right. and uh, you know, and then gurus started to come. You know, some of the you know teachers from India, they were Buddhist teachers, Zen teachers mainly. Yeah. And, and then some of the swamis and guru, yogis that were coming. And so the, there was something about the exposure to Eastern philosophy through people like, uh, in my case, Alan Watts. Yeah. And, and Aldous Huxley, yep. and then directly, you know, I remember getting my first copy of the Bhagavad Gita. I was living in New York, and it was hard to find one. And how did I know about it? Because I was reading Thoreau, mm. and Thoreau mentions it in Walden. So I said, right. okay, if Thoreau likes it so much, I'll find this thing. And I, so all of this somehow resonated with me, and um, I was drawn to learn more and more and more and to go deeper and deeper into it, <clears throat> because even though I had this anti-religious upbringing and, and sensibility, there was something beyond religion in, in Eastern practices and Eastern ideas. It was, um, it was not dogma. It was right. not doctrine and it, it you know it wasn't even speculative philosophy like we think of philosophy it was it had the ring of uh, empiricism mm. and rationality i remember reading something about uh, mis comparative mysticism i think it was um evelyn underwood's book on mysticism you know sitting around the you know, with my roommates, and I suddenly said, I'm reading this book on mysticism. It doesn't seem very mysterious to me. It seems rational. <laughs> it seems it seems logical. This appeals to how the world probably works. And, right. and, no, and what I liked most was nobody asked me to believe in something that was hard to believe. Sure. No, no one said, you know, you must embrace this mythological history or you'll you know go to hell or whatever yeah. or you must you must um, believe in this creed or this doctrine they said this is these are insights that particularly brilliant and intuitive people you know call them sages rishis saints whatever right. um had and see if they hold up yeah. see if they hold up to reason see if they hold up to empirical evidence it was never anti-science, it was never anti-history, it was never anti-logic or rationality, where there were leaps you had to make, they didn't ask you to do it on faith, they said, try it out. Right. Try out these methods, and if they work, you know, you'll, fine. And no one asked you to convert or anything, and so I said, well, 
obviously there's more to the universe than I was learning about. And, uh, you know, I was a psychology gra- major and then a, for briefly a psychology graduate student. Mm. Sort of it, similar to Ram Dass in my own way. I was like, you know, studying psychology and I never became a psychologist like right. he did. But, you know, all these openings led to something bigger than what was then known. Right. And and so I, I was drawn to it. And by uh, 1968, uh, 50 years ago, Chris, Jesus, oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I uh, um, sort of in the aftermath of the Beatles going to India to meditate with uh, Maharshi Mahesh Yogi, making him. The, the most famous guru on the planet right, in those days. Right. Um, I I was drawn to methods, and I was I practiced Zen meditation. I tried others, so I tried uh, TM transcendental sure. meditation in '68, uh, and it it took on me. It it it, it resonated well with me, and it was transformative. Hmm. You know. It had immediate effects as soon as I introduced that practice into my life on a daily basis. Yeah. And, you know, that, uh, you know, bodily changes, mental changes. Uh, and so I was drawn in that direction and a couple of years later became a teacher trained by uh, Maharishi. And for um, uh, several years uh, taught meditation, taught in that context, um, deepen my understanding of these, you know, traditional Eastern pathways, right. and um, then, you know, continue to grow and learn and evolve and uh, uh, branch out and become more eclectic in my spiritual pursuits, and, you know, and that's been, you know, my life, essentially, uh, very consciously doing what I think most of your listeners, if not all of them, have been trying to do, which is to integrate the spiritual growth with uh, worldly responsibilities and pleasures and pains and everything else, uh, which is sort of the ongoing effort that we all make. And every once in a while, over the course of my writing career, I got to write about that. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that's what I did. And uh, uh there's a natural segue to the new book, but I'll let you make it when, whenever you're ready. <laughs> well, yeah, well, we will jump into that. I just did want to comment. Um, you know, I've, I found it really interesting that, first of all, while my parents weren't religious, they weren't to the extreme that yours were. Um, but I certainly, um, I was not brought up religious. I appreciate um, the comment, you know, the opiate of the masses, because that was very much the way I was looking at it. I also did not know the difference between religion and spirituality. Um, to no. me, they were the same thing. I was very naive. And um, and so I grew up extremely, I don't even know if atheist does justice to to my yeah. disdain towards <laughs> religion. You know what yeah, I mean? Me too. Yeah, I I, uh, I've shared this story before, but I remember when I was a senior in high school, we went up to our... Um, it was called the Hartford Civic Center then. It's now called the XL Center, but it's like our big center where when we used to have our, our professional hockey team and um, and sports events and concerts and whatnot. So they had a college fair, and I remember there were people handing out Bibles on the steps, and I took one and just started ripping it up in front of them. Like, that's <laughs> how like much I hated the idea of religion. But for me... 
Uh, it wasn't until I was about 24, so we're going back, you know, what, over 15 years now, that um, my college professor gave me, and I wish I had, I often joke, some, you know, grand story about how I found my way into the path, but it was really be uh, or not be here now it was uh the power of now by Eckhart Tolle Mm -hmm. pre Oprah Mm -hmm. thank goodness because I was still very (laughs) anti all you know the idea of anything but um I trusted my professor you know very very much and and I wasn't much of a reader either but you know I read the introduction to that book and I knew that my life was never going to be the same he he conveyed Mm -hmm. it for me in a way that I needed to hear in that moment and I immediately um, started, I lived right around the corner from a, a wonderful library in Middletown, Connecticut. And uh, Autobiography of a Yogi was one of the first books I took out along with. It was just anything I could get my hands on from Trungpa Rinpoche to Alan Watts, like you mentioned, Ram Dass, Thich Nhat Hanh, um, Thomas Merton. It didn't matter, you know, whatever the tradition, mm-hmm. It just as long as it wasn't more of the dogmatic tenets. So... Um, I really appreciated how I think you used the word rational and that's Mm -hmm. what it was to me. It was, oh, okay. It's not necessarily churchianity. It's, you know, it's a, there there is something, it's a personal experience as Ram Dass would say at the individual path. And this isn't verbatim, but something to the effect of uh, that the spiritual journey is a highly individualized experience you know Mm -hmm. and and it is and that's been my experience for many years so i just wanted to to you know piggyback on what you said and share a bit about my own experience and um with that said though you said that there was a a nice segue with all of this into (laughs) the new book so hopefully i didn't ruin said segue no no. (laughs) we're right we're right in sync here all right Um, perfect do you want to okay i'll just go ahead with what i was going to say please part of when, going back to what I said about myself, um, back in, I think it was 1970, early part of 70 or late 69, I just have a vision of where I was living at the time, and I moved so much, I know where I live. Um, someone gave me a copy of Yogananda's Autobiography of a Yogi. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was already embarked on my path. I was already meditating every day and going on retreats, but I uh, hadn't yet read that. Sure. And and then, it, but it resonated deeply, and it deepened my path. It deepened my understanding, and it it, it also opened the door to India as a place, uh, you know, in in ways that um, I hadn't had before, and and Yogananda's autobiography is so popular even today 72 years after it was published mm. and 66 years after he died yeah um that um one of the reasons for that is very few uh, gurus swamis renunciates like he was um write about themselves They write about knowledge. Maybe they write a little bit about themselves or their guru or their time with their guru. Yogananda also wrote about growing up in India and all the yogis and these miraculous things he witnessed or heard about. And uh, so there was a taste of uh, a personal quest that you don't usually get. And, And there was something to identify with and something to sort of increase the fascination 
with yeah. everything I was involved in. And also a lot of insights, you know, into personal, you know, deep a spiritual experience and uh, philosophy and so forth. And I, the book, you know, had a big effect on me. And as I write in the introduction to mine, I never became a student of Yogananda's in a formal way, never became a disciple or a devotee. I had my own path. Right. But he's one of the many, you know, brilliant people who informed me in, as, in my path. And that book, I still have all these years later. Right. It's a hard, it's a hard cover. It says $5 on the cover. And, um, and I didn't, I know I wouldn't have had $5 to buy a hardcover book <laughs> in, in, in those days. I could barely, you know, scrape together a meal. And, and sure. so I probably, I probably borrowed it and never returned it because I still have it. And have, with all these moves. And so I always say when asked why I wrote <clears throat> my my biography of Yogananda, I always say I'm working out the karma for not returning that book mm. and essentially ripping it off. But <laughs> yeah. that that's 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 for humor. Yes, the the yes. truth is, um, I was just fascinated. Uh, Yogananda was a, somebody, one of the many teachers I respected and, and admired and learned from. And then uh, about 10, 11 years ago, when I first started researching American Veda, um, I had to write about all the gurus who ever came here. Yeah. Uh, plus, you know, the Westerners who helped propagate the uh, Eastern philosophies and teachings. Um, and so I, I researched them and Yogananda, you know, loomed as one of the most important, if not the most important, of the the teachers who came here from India. Um, and there are reasons for that. He came in 1920, and he lived here. He, right. he, this this America became his home, and his the international headquarters of the organization he established. And this is where you know the the bulk of his work was done, which made him famous, and which is still. Uh, influencing people to this day. So um, he, he, he was a major figure in the story I told in, in American Veda. And so he, he was one of the few uh, teachers who got a chapter of his own. Mm. But and researching that book not only sort of enhanced my respect and admiration for what he accomplished, I became even more fascinated with his human story. The, 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 you know, nitty gritty of the life of this yogi and this person with a mission yeah. that he was dedicated to coming to of being a stranger in a strange land and, you know, 1920 and yeah. being here through the roaring 20s and the Great Depression and World War Two. And what was that like? And what did he encounter? And what obstacles did he have to overcome? And going back further, what, what was left out of autobiography of a yogi about life in India that, right. that shaped the person he became? And even more important, what was left out of his autobiography about his life after he came to the West? Yes, right. And, and that I love that you, that you did that, you know, because as you mentioned, you know, actually what I wanted to do, if it's right with you, was read a couple of paragraphs just from the introduction mm. um, just Please. to give listeners a little bit more about the book. Um, but I, you know, and, and I think that'll, because right off the bat, actually I'll just go ahead and read it because 
I, yeah, love, I would like to hear it myself. Yeah, I love that you start the book like this because I can imagine a lot of people listening. You know, I'm, I'm sure the majority, if not all of them, are familiar with Yogananda. You know, so, you know, like you say, and and let's just jump right into it in the introduction. And again, I'll just read a few paragraphs. But right off the bat, you start off at the very beginning of the book. The question I was asked most frequently while working on this book was, why do we need a biography of Yogananda when we have autobiography of a yogi? The broad answer is this. In the life of any important historical figure, there is room for many books. The specific answers are, and some of this you covered, but again, just to reiterate in your own words from the book, one, Yogananda's iconic memoir is as much about other people as it is about himself. Two, there are major gaps in his narrative, including spans of several years that are summarized in one or two sentences. And three, while Yogananda spent almost all of his adult years in America, less than 10% of the autobiography is about the immensely productive and historically significant period. The prospect of filling in those spaces seemed both enticing and important. Several books have been written about Yogananda by direct disciples. These are valuable first-hand accounts of who he was and what he was like. They are, however, more like tributes than biographies. My goal was to draw a more complete portrait of Yogananda the human being. An extraordinary human being to be sure, but human nonetheless, with all the complexity that term implies. The book's central narrative is the saga of a profoundly spiritual being navigating the material realm, attempting to unite fully with the divine while skillfully playing his role in the human drama, just as he taught so many to do themselves. No book can capture the true essence of a soul like Yogananda, but it can describe the footprints he left on the sands of time and space. My goal was to render an accurate, fact-based description of those exceptional footprints. And the final paragraph I wanted to share from this. To many, Yogananda was a saint. To some, he was an avatar, an incarnation of God. I am not qualified to make such evaluations. For me, it was enough that his contribution to spiritual history of East and West is unparalleled, and that his life unfolded in a compelling narrative spanning two hemispheres, two vastly different cultures, two world wars, massive economic upheavals, and unprecedented social changes. I set out to tell that remarkable story as truthfully and thoroughly as I could, knowing full well that I could not do justice to it in 3,000 pages, let alone 300. <laughs> and not, you know, I'll, I'll end there, but you do go on to note, and I really appreciate this, um, that you say that, you know, um, and this is me just paraphrasing, but um, you talk about how you know that you're, or you anticipate receiving feedback from both yes. sides, people saying that, that you're too much of a yoga Nanda sympathizer or people saying, you know, that uh, you went too easy or too hard or this or that. And, you know, yeah. you can never I, please everybody. And so what I love is your response to that is I was, I was, write your own I book. Was <laughs> yeah, write your own book. <laughs> yeah. I was, it was my attempt to co-opt angry emails. <laughs> <laughs> Headed off at the pass. Well played. Very well played. <laughs> 
So, so yeah, so I appreciate you giving us, you know, the, the why and, and, and what led you to do this. And, and I think if anyone is, you know, qualified you with your history of, you know, your previous books and the work you do and your interfaith wisdom, you know, um, I'm, I'm glad that you were the one to undertake this endeavor. And like you mentioned, there have been other books written about him, but, um, you know, you did so in as unbiased of a fashion as possible. Um, and and I should add, no book, none of the books about him. Um, there's nobody outside of his uh, circle of disciples have written about him. So, yeah. Um, I thought there was value in somebody who has uh, you know credibility as a professional writer coming at it from the outside, right? And publishing not in, in one of the organizations devoted to his work, but from you know an independent source. Yeah, which is so important, and uh, and I'm and again, so I'm glad you did that. And this, you know, Hay House put it out. They did a tremendous job. It's a beautiful hardback uh, or hardcover, excuse me. And you know, I love in the middle. There's plenty of lovely pictures you've included. Yeah. Um, you know, from his talks, uh, all sorts of just wonderful, wonderful material. So, you know, to be fully transparent with the audience, as I mentioned to Phil prior to, um, generally I, you know, my conversations, my listeners, know, I like to have them as organically as possible, but I typically do prepare some talking points prior to, uh, the exception, one of the exceptions is today where, um, as I mentioned to Phil, just, um, it's been about four or five days now or so since I lost one of my very, very dear friends. So, uh, it's been a bit of a, a difficult, uh, few days for me and I truly have not had the time to devote as much attention to this book as I normally would have prior to speaking with Phil. Um, but I, you know, as we talked about it and he said, well, would you like to reschedule? And, and I said, no, you know, I think this gives us the opportunity to more organically, kind of explore this book which I am in the process of reading and of course actually Phil this might work out to your benefit because I know once I'm done I'll have a million more questions for you um so I'll just have to have you back on the show again um so we'll give you double the exposure <laughs> that'd be fine um, with me yeah yeah I, I love talking with you so with that said um you know, we, we, we've still got a good you know anywhere from 15 20 25 minutes left to to, to go so Let's talk about the book. I mean, as mentioned, you, you cover, you, you do still give the, you know, a, a background of him for anyone not really um, familiar with Yogananda, though, as you mentioned, most people probably, if they pick this book up, at least know of Yogananda if, uh, if they haven't already read Autobiography. Yeah. Which at you at the very least, they've yes. seen his picture in yes. a yoga studio <laughs> or course. on somebody's altar. Yes. Or, or they've seen the book and they, you know, they've been meaning to read it. Right. At the very least, yes. I, you know, most people will have heard of him. Yeah. Although, you know, it's, uh, since uh, the book um, started to be, uh, uh, was in the process of being published and everything, I'd meet people and they'd say, what are you working on? And I'd tell them. And I was surprised how many people uh, don't know who Yogananda was. So I'm hoping some of them will read it too, oh, just because wonderful. it's a, it's a really good story. It really is. Yeah. And, and for me, the type of reader I am, biographies are hit or miss. Um, you know, I it, it has to really, I find, be captivating. And you talk about that too, how in this book you talk about, you know, some of the things that 
um, Yogananda's disciples might get upset about because it brings into question, you know, um, for lack of better word, it's just the word that's coming to mind is purity or avatar Mm -hmm. nature. But, you know, you look at these other teachers like Alan Watts, you know, or Chogyam Trungpa. And, you know, many of them had, you know, their, their scandals surrounding them or, you know, the alcoholism or this or that. And, uh, and so I, I try to appreciate, you know, the saying the listen to the message, not the messenger to a certain extent. Um, you know, I've been, we should make clear, we should make clear that Yogananda was not, when you mention alcoholism, but he's not in that category. Right. In fact, there's, there's some very funny anecdotes, you know, because he was, you know, unlike Alan, Alan Watts was not a, a, a swami who took right. vows of, you know, certain right. things. And so it's, it's different, but uh, Yogananda was, um, <laughs> one of the, one of the things that happens when you write a biography is you come across stuff that most people don't know about and, yeah. and that show up in like, if you have access to, uh, letters that have never been published or, you know, uh, talks he gave that only a few people have heard and things like that. Yeah. But there are wonderful stories and, and some of them are just fun. Right. Um, some of them are much more meaningful. And yes. and one of the fun things is the one time he had, you know, he had the politeness when he was first in America, uh, tasted beer. Mm. And he apparently dip, dipped his finger in it and tasted it and didn't like it and never did it again. But he right. would do things like when he was at parties, and, you know, being the only Swami. Yes. <laughs> um, when people would, there's one story where he was at a dinner party and the the uh, host or whoever it was, waiter, uh, would keep fill, refilling people's wine. And he would pour it into his seating companion's glass mm-hmm. and then it would be refilled again. And the other guy got totally drunk <laughs> because, you know, yoga, he didn't want to make a fuss. And so, sure, <laughs> sure. Um, but apparently he didn't, he didn't like, uh, alcohol. Yes, no. And that is, <laughs> and thank you for clarifying. Cause right. Um, no, he, he was not like, like, uh, like I'd mentioned with Alan Watts or trunk, but Rinpoche and, uh, and then other scandals, you know, but, um, yeah. it, but, but there were accusations and, uh, you know, you're sure. bringing it up and it's, it's always going to come up. Of there course. Are, you know, and, and what's, what's interesting, you know, there was always around every major spiritual figure, there have all there have always been, well, what you could call scandals, but in some cases the scandals were actually you know were justified. They sure, were, there was ev- evidence of you know improper behavior right. or hypocritical behavior, usually around sex or money. Yes, and um, or both, yeah. and and in some cases uh, the the scandals erupt. Uh, in, not with with insufficient evidence, just by inference or you know people have enemies who are disillusioned, disappointed. They'll they'll speculate about things. They'll believe certain things that may or may not have happened, right. and will be very vocal about it. And Yogananda was no exception to that. Yeah. He endured a lot of that during his lifetime. Some of which were like front page news stories. Sure. Because they were connected to lawsuits, and you know, and in those days, I might add, in the twenties and thirties, you know, he he was also a dark-skinned heathen from a foreign land, teaching, and most the majority of his students, like as in yoga studios today, were women, and this 
got a lot of people very upset, mm. not just with him, but with other teachers from India who had come and go. And there was a big up, uh, you know, to do over these inscrutable Orientals, you know, seducing American women, you know, through their mind power and yes. their hip hypnotic ability. I mean, this was like, you know, news. There's a, in one of the photos in the uh, photo section of, of my book is a 1912 headline from the um, Washington Post, you know, about uh, with an illustration of a American of a woman bowing at the feet of a Swami. And the headline is American women victims of Hindu mysticism. <laughs> so, you know, Plus, you know, he he was uh, um, he was not only you know uh, what people would call a, a heathen in religious terms, but he was a victim of racism. You know, sure. he, had, he was dark skinned. He was Indian, and at a time when Indians weren't even permitted to become citizens, and so he dealt with all this stuff. And he had enemies and people who just didn't like him. And th there were all these accusations. But the interesting thing is. He's been dead for 66 years, and people are still to this day arguing over whether he had sex with some of his disciples, whether he fathered children that were kept hidden, and all this sort of stuff. And so I, I had to address this. There's not many people. You know, he has millions of fans and devotees, and some people you know, are absolutely convinced he was um, a, a reprobate of sorts, and... Um, they write about this stuff. And so I had to sift through all the evidence. I, was, I wanted to be objective. I had no skin in the game, as they say. I have great respect for Yogananda. But if those accusations had turned out to be true, right. it would not have changed my uh, respect for him as a teacher. Yeah. As, you know, uh, uh, but it would be very upsetting to other people who hold him you know, not only in high regard, but as their coveted uh, guru. Yeah. Your guru, and and so I wanted to be honest and objective, and and truth be told, in the end, as I say in the book, I found no convincing evidence mm -hmm. um, that any of those uh, accusations uh, were true. I, I it doesn't mean they weren't true. Right. I just have found no convincing evidence. Certainly nothing strong enough for me to take a, a position and say. Um, you know, he he did these things and and uh, history should note it. But, uh, you know, m my basic, you know, is, uh, feeling is um, he deserves the benefit of the doubt in the absence of convincing evidence. Yeah. But of course, you know, anything that happened, if it did happen, happened 70 or 80 years ago or more and 80, 90 years ago. So, yeah, right. Very true. And even with, you know, as you're saying that, I'm thinking about Maharaji, you know, Ram Dass's guru mm -hmm. and who the whole love server member foundation has been based upon his teachings. And, um, a lot of people were unaware that he had a family, he had children. Yeah. And, yeah. uh, you yeah. know, it's just, we are, uh, something, um, I don't know if you know, Jeff Brown, the writer, um, but he's, he's a really lovely writer. And, you know, he said, I, I, you know, and apologies to Jeff, if I'm misquoting, but something to the effect of, even though it is absolutely true that we are spiritual beings having a human experience, it is equally true that we are human beings having a human experience. You know, something that is that exactly effect. right. Yeah. And that's what I, that's the attitude I took about Yogananda. Right. It was like as a story, yeah. as a human story, as a boy born in 1893 named Mukunda, hmm. 
growing up in India with a certain family at a certain time and certain places, becoming an adolescent, living his formative teenage years and college years in Calcutta, in a part of Calcutta that I compare to Greenwich Village because of its progressive and sort of the revolutionary spirit and the artistic flourishing that was going on there at the time and the freedom movement and all that and the abundance of gurus. Um, <clears throat> what did all that it's, and then coming here. Yeah. Now what is, and then living here and progressing here and having friends here and having students here or Americans having to adapt his own way of life, even his appearance. Right. And, and his teaching to, uh, American ways and American customs at that time in history, how he did that, how he managed to do it, the obstacles he faced, the burdens he carried, the, the, and, and that is very true. All that makes for, a, a, you know, and then later in his years, changing certain things about his, his life and his teachings, writing autobiography, dying at 59, yeah. you know, after illness and you know all that is to me a compelling story but it was one of the really interesting things was part of the human drama of course as we all know is overcoming uh what we you know obstacles right. in our path uh, suffering from uh hardship and pain and disappointment uh loss failure defeat uh, opposition right. and all those human things we as spiritual people often think uh, we'd rather not have to deal with and that we'd rather uh, or we we even assume will disappear from our lives, you know, once we achieve a certain spiritual status. Right. But but they never disappeared from Yogananda's life. And he was, to his credit, pretty candid about all that he had to deal with. And there were many times when he just said, hey, you know. This is I don't want to do this anymore. I don't. I, I I just want to go back to India and live the simple life of a monk. Yeah. And he, he voiced that feeling many times and was drawn to do that, but never did because you know he had this mission. It was given to him by his guru and his guru's guru, and he felt compelled to do it. And uh, you know it was like that Al Pacino thing in Godfather Three where he says, "Every time I think I'm out, you know, I get dragged back, back into." In. Yeah. <laughs> And he felt that only in his case, he attributed the pulling back into God right. or to divine, divine mother, you know, and all that. And so that to me was very compelling just as on the human level. Yeah. And, um, you know, so and I, I and I wanted to emphasize all that because I think not only is it a better story, a more compelling narrative, but I think there are lessons in it for all of us who are on a spiritual path and dealing with, you know, real life stuff. And, um, you know, so in, in certain respects, he, he's a worthy no, role model right. for us. If he went through that crap, why, you know, what makes us think we should be immune to it? Oh, absolutely. Um, I very much appreciate, you know, how you, you just relate all of that. Um, something I could very much relate to in my own way. I mean, <laughs> not comparing myself to Yogananda, let me be very clear. But, yes, the, <laughs> the simple 
or or not simple, so simple, but the adversities I faced in my own life, very you know, having several near death experiences, etc. And then looking at others who, you know, when I was on my own pity pot at certain times, looking at what others have faced or are going through and Yes, maybe I have almost died as a result of the way I chose to live and uh, for several years. But, you know, looking at others and how they overcame adversity, uh, even in while in certain situations or circumstances, whether it was on death row or whatever the case may be, you know, that was very inspiring to me, just like that, you know, Yogananda is inspiring to me and, and others. So it's not that they have to go through that necessarily but um you know i mean we all do to a certain extent so it's it's yep. it's part of the human experience you know and so so not yep. to shift gears entirely here but since we are on the topic i am curious and we will come right back to yogananda but you know we're talking about these gurus and teachers from the the east coming west and um and the accusations and whatnot and i'm curious to see if you have had an opportunity to watch this uh this documentary yes i know where you're going so let's hear it what do you have to say (laughs) (laughs) well for the audience wild wild country it's called about osho uh and so yes i'm only three episodes in i i had heard many of the stories but you got you got a lot of uh, revelations ahead (laughs) okay so so yeah what's your take i mean um what what are Uh, you okay this is about Rajneesh, uh, aka Osho, right. and what what went down uh, in the uh, in, uh, intentional community. Right. They try he and his followers tried to establish in Oregon in the eighties. Yeah. Now I <laughs> I watched it with some friends, yeah. and and they thought you know I because of American Veda they knew I had written about all the gurus who had come here, including a section, a few pages about Rajneesh. Yes. And and I had done my I had done my homework enough to write the, those pages and and so they they all thought I w- I would know things mm. well <laughs> yeah I may I may have known more than the average person but that documentary series just blew my mind because yeah. I, I had no idea the depth of the drama and the craziness and that had gone down there yeah it, it is really a fabulously told intricate story and you know it just it it shows you one on one level the uh, kind of opposition that um sort of anything counter to the mainstream can encounter in um uh is sort of infiltrating a traditional small town American way of life. Right. And here, here are these wild hippies and led by this sort of cult leader figure, you know, to them from India. Um, and, but it also shows you, you know, what can happen when devotion to a guru, uh, can be unhealthy Mm. either because the guru is, um, has his own weaknesses and that you be then become part of and, and, uh, or because you become a true believer and, um, uh, get sucked into, uh, an unhealthy culture that surrounds the guru and yeah. the people around the gurus. I mean, 
it's 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 unclear to what extent and people are arguing about it right now it's unclear to this extent to which rajneesh or osho himself knew about what was going on and the depth of depravity and uh criminality right that was going on uh, among his followers um people will argue about that forever i'm sure his defenders will say oh he was in silence this was all the fault of uh, sheila the, the person who who you know sort of ran the place and um, was a ringleader, uh, and others will say, of course he knew, you know, and he was nuts himself, and he was you know, e- you know, evil or whatever, depraved, uh, and we'll never know. But the facts are the facts, and you know, there were attempted murders, and there was uh, yeah. you know, uh, you know, battery of assault rifles and target practice. There was attempted poisoning of people. There was all kind. You know, illegal immigration things going on. It was it was crazy. Yeah. And um, so it's a cautionary tale. You know, the Tibetans have, uh, and I write about this in the in the biography of Yogananda because you know he was a guru and he had close disciples. He himself was a close disciple of you know of highly regarded guru Sri Yukteswar, and he uh, took on that traditional role of disciple with the, the kind of surrender and devotion that that implies. And he had people around him who did the same to him. And that dynamic, that guru-disciple dynamic, is a very complicated one, and it's not for everybody. It's right. really for a few people. And But there were also all those around him who were you know, loyal students, but they were not disciple-disciples. And then, you know, there are countless numbers who learn from him, uh, sign up for the courses taught in his name and all that, who never become disciples, but are just students. And and around all the gurus of, of note, there are always these sort of um, orbits that you can find, you know, at some distance from the center of the guru and the guru's organization. The closest disciples are, you know, close to the nucleus. And then there's other orbits at a greater distance, and you, everybody has to choose for themselves. But you see it in his story, the importance of that and having a healthy relationship with teachers yes. and also some, some of the hazards. And the hazards you know, are told in that documentary series uh, in spades. Oh, yeah. You know, it's like the Tibetans have a, a, a saying that a guru is like fire. If you don't get close enough, you, you just don't get warm. Mm-hmm. But if you don't get too close... You know, you can get burned. Absolutely. So, yeah. so you, everybody has to find their own distance. Yeah, very well said. I remember I'd watched the uh, Crazy Wisdom documentary a while back on Trungpa Rinpoche when that came out, and you know, I was fascinated by that. And of course, I've read uh, Ram Dass's Paths to God, in which he recounts, you know, many times teaching with Chogyam Trungpa at uh, at Naropa <laughs> and some of the crazy, you know, scenarios that he'd find himself in with Trungpa. But um, yeah, that that pales in comparison to this documentary. Um, and I, Ram Dass, I should add, since, yeah. you know, you bring him up. Yeah. You know, his devotion to Neem Karoli Baba to Maharishi is is you know a beautiful example of how. Uh, transformative in a positive way that relationship can be, yes. but he he you know he had a healthy relationship right. to the guru and um, many other people you know if the if if it's not a good match yeah 
Yes. <laughs> you know, it's, it's not going to work out there. It's like a marriage. Yeah, exactly. So as we're starting to wind down here, Phil, you know, I what again, what I appreciate is that in this uh, biography, you focus quite a bit on the latter part of Yogananda's life in America, mm. which was not um, really covered uh, at length in his autobiography. So was there, you know, maybe one or two particular things you discovered in your exploration that were, you know, just really stood out to you? Um, or even if it wasn't the latter part of his years, anything in general while you were researching and working on this book that that really was a big, um, I don't know, for lack of a better word, epiphany or just a, you know, a wow yeah. moment for you. There, there were there were a lot of small epiphanies. Sure. OK. Oh, I didn't know that. No one knows that. Oh, yeah. I get to write. A, I get to write about this. It's nowhere else. Yeah. And, you know, the big one we have already talked about, which was the degree to which. Uh, he had obstacles in his way and the degree to which there were upheavals and challenges that he had to overcome. And a lot of that had to do with money. You know, he, he early in his life, you know, when he was training with his guru, he called um, organizations hornet's nests. Mm. And he, he really didn't want to have anything to do with it. Yeah. But you know, he had this mission to bring, you know, his lineage's teachings to the West, and he was going to fulfill that. And so you get enough students and you get enough people coming to hear you speak. And, you know, and he was filling auditoriums. He filled sure. Carnegie Hall. He filled, you know, 3,000 uh, seat uh, auditoriums. And um, when you get that kind of success, you get those kind of numbers and you have a mission. Well, it requires organization, and organizations require money. Yeah. And in their, his case, properties were bought, and you know, and then the depression hit. Well, yeah. he was worried about money and struggling for money to to cover the bills and everything. His whole time in America, right up, you see it in his letters, just weeks or months before he died, mm-hmm. and. You know, he was still worried about the future of the organization as, it would, you know, the health that would survive his death and what steps could he take. So he had to deal with all this stuff like a CEO or an entrepreneur does when he would much rather have just been meditating in a cave. Yeah. And and but he never stopped meditating. <laughs> right. He never stopped his sadhana. He never gave that up. That was always the priority, but he still had to do all this stuff. And the degree of challenge that that presented to him was a, a surprise to me, and I think will come as a surprise even to many of his disciples. And then there were little things like, you know, he was here during the uh, Indian freedom movement, you know, and so mm. I, I kind of, I, I, one of the things I like doing is placing incidents uh, in, in the context of history as it was being made at that time. So what was going on in India? What was going on in World War II? What was going on with the Great Depression uh, as certain periods of Yogananda's life? And one thing he never hid was his fondness for Gandhi and his advocacy of Indian independence. That could have, he was traveling here on a British passport because he was a a British subject of, you know, Imperial India, of, you know, the the British uh, colonial power. And he could have been deported at any moment as a subversive 
uh, and the Brits were keeping an eye on him. Right. And I, I had access to certain documents that showed, you know, they were even opening his mail. They were, you know, spying on him and then send, you know, going to see, hear him speak and then sending in reports. Do you think this guy's subversive? You know, is he OK? Can we let him stay? All this stuff was going on, and you know, people don't know about that, and I don't even know if he knew about it at the time. <laughs> sure. But he he certainly knew that he was under scrutiny, and uh, you know, the other thing was that was interesting was the degree to which he commented on uh, current affairs and mm. politics and world, you know, what was going on in the world. He was he was a renunciate, but he was engaged, and I I found that admirable, and I, I and also a bit surprising. Yeah. Well, so, you know, I want to ask you one last question um, before we wrap this up. And uh, I, as I mentioned, love Yogananda's work. He, uh, I also really appreciated his book, Whispers uh, from Eternity, a lot of beautiful wording in there. Mm. And, you know, Mm -hmm. he was just a gifted writer. Um, I actually, even before you and I spoke, I had begun my endeavoring back into his like thousand plus page, the second coming of Christ, um, yeah, which, yeah. you know, is a wonderful read. Um, but so you start your book out with um, a quote, which is a beautiful quote of his and amongst the many where he, he says, we are here today, tomorrow we are gone, mere shadows in a cosmic dream. But behind the unreality of these fleeting pictures is the immortal reality of spirit. And so I just wanted to close by asking you why that particular quote to begin this book. <laughs> I could, this is very funny, Chris. I was thinking, I finished the book. It was yeah. being edited. I was rewriting and I was thinking, I'd love to have an epigraph and a good epigraph. And it should be something from him. Yeah. Not something, you know, by some other philosopher or something. Sure. And I was thinking, you know, I got thousands and thousands of pages of his writing. I couldn't go through all that. And I had various quotes and on file that I either used in the book or didn't. And, um, and I didn't find anything suitable, Mm. but SRF self-realization fellowship comes out with a yoga on the calendar every year with beautiful, beautiful nature pictures on each, uh, you know, one page per, for each week in the year, beautiful pictures and a quote from Yogananda. So I had one and I, it was a few years old and I, I looked through it and bingo, there it was, it was right there. And, and the reason, and I said, okay, this is the quote, because A, it tells you, it tells you about the, the sort of metaphysical reality that uh, his work, uh, like all the gurus, embodies, you know, that right. we are here and we are just, you know, flitting images on a screen, this, you know, the, the, and the, the light projecting is pure spirit and eternal and infinite. Yes. And that, that's, you know, that's who we are. That is the nature of this human manifestation. But our, our true nature is, you know, pure spirit, Brahman, as they say in, in, in India. But the other part is that we are here today, tomorrow we are gone. Well, that reflects a life story in one little passage. And I was writing a life story. I was writing a biography. Mm-hmm. So it resonated on that level yeah. of both, you know, what the book attempts to show, which is, you know, as, as you read, the, the footprint of somebody who was here today and gone tomorrow. Yeah. And, yeah. and also the, the, the bigger reality. Yeah. 
Well, wonderfully said. Thanks for sharing that story, Phil, and, and, and everything else. The book, again, it's called The Life of Yogananda, The Story of the Yogi Who Became the First Modern Guru uh, by Phil Goldberg, or Philip, professionally speaking, Goldberg, <laughs> uh, who is also the author of American Veda, another wonderful book. And again, um, I highly encourage anyone listening to check out his website, philipgoldberg.com. Um, if, again, you're on the Be Here Now Network uh, site, just scroll down. There will be a link attached. Just click on that. And, uh, and Phil, you mentioned earlier, I believe you have a workshop coming up with our friend Dana Sawyer at Kripalu. Yeah, I have a, a lot of things coming up. Yeah, they tell can us find about my, that. My, my calendar on my website. Okay. Um, I'm going to be going around many cities speaking about the book and other things. So I Lovely. invite people to come up and introduce themselves as uh, fellow mutual fans of Chris Grasso. And, uh, um, but also, yeah, the, the one at Kripalu is uh, in early June, and it's a uh, four-day uh, meditation retreat at Kripalu. You know, Dana's a great a scholar of uh, Indian uh, philosophy. And Absolutely. Mantra, and we'll be, it, it's, it's uh, built around mantra meditation and uh, the use of mantra. And I invite everybody to check that out on the Kripalu site and come see us. And you can hear uh, interviews with wonderful people like uh, Chris Grasso on spiritmatters.com, although you, your has, yours hasn't been posted as of this recording. And um, you can even join me on a tour of India in the fall. All of this on my website, but enough commercials. Yes, no, but it is. I mean, I, I'm horrible with self-promotion it feels icky to me i'm still working <laughs> on it but it's you know it, we've got to do what we've got to do to continue getting the work out and the yes. word out and and when it's coming from a place of of passion and integrity well, you know there's nothing wrong with that so and I'm, and again we can be inspired by yogananda who early on when he was here the first few years which he spent in boston had to be convinced to advertise yes yeah yeah. So thank God I have a publisher to at least do that end of things for me. But uh, yeah. yeah. Anyways, Phil, it's been a real pleasure. Um, like I said, I will definitely have you back on again once I'm able to complete the book and we can go even more in depth into, um, you know, all of the stories and and much of what uh, I'm guessing many of our listeners are don't know about Yogananda. But at that time, okay. maybe they will since they will have had a chance to read the book themselves. So, yeah. They can they can send their emails to me and we can you know answer questions. Oh, that's a great idea. Cool. Yeah, Ken Wilbur and I did that for a series on Integral Life. Oh, great. Yeah, we had a lot of fun doing that. So maybe we'll do something like that here too. Great idea. Okay. All right, Phil. Thank you. I appreciate it, and have yourself a lovely day. You too. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, 
build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Be Here Now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Be Here Now.